0: Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I am your host tonight, Gavin Telemeti, and I'm joined with...
1: Reese Patterson.
0: And today we are joined with PhD student Leah Sachs from the Earth Science Department. How are you doing tonight?
1: I'm doing well. How about
0: you? I'm doing pretty good. How about you, Reese?
2: I'm doing just peachy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so everyone's been enjoying the cold weather then?
2: Oh, yeah. Of course, yeah. yes. <laughs> as we are recording this podcast, it is what minus twenty one outside. Nice brisk uh, twenty one degrees.
0: Yeah, Lovely. yeah. I current I currently have a freezer that's over capacity, and I'm leaving stuff outside to stay frozen as I <laughs> <Nature's>, make space. <laughs>
2: yes, nature's freezer. Of course, of course. <laughs> there, <laughs> there, is, space.
0: there is one advantage to living in Canada in the winter. And that is, your outdoors is your freezer. Uh. So, Lear, uh, I think we can jump right into the show. Uh, Why don't you quickly tell the audience, what is your research that you do at Weston?
1: Well, I just finished doing some research for my master's degree that's on an impact crater on Mars. Um, And I was studying the ejecta, which is all of the material that comes out of the crater. And now I'll be starting to work on some structural geology and looking at fractures on the surface of moons in the outer solar system.
0: What was the name of the crater uh, on Mars that you focused on, since it was just one?
1: Hargrave's Crater. And it's sort of near where the rover is going to land um, in a couple of weeks, I guess, for Mars 2020.
0: Oh, cool. So it's very close to the, because they're landing the Jezero Crater, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yes, yes. and it's just northwest of Jezero.
0: Okay, that's pretty cool.
1: We should preface this episode with the fact that there
2: are three geology majors on this episode, <laughs> <laughs> um, both of whom are in the Earth and planetary planetary science uh, degree field. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm the odd person out. I don't study. I don't study space.
0: <laughs> but you so still study rocks. Will,
2: I still study <laughs> rocks, and that's what matters the most.
0: <laughs> and it's also a good bonus that this episode will come. Will probably be coming out. Um, just after the land, I think just after the landing. So we'll be hopefully get to see what that's like.
2: So obviously these craters are important. Um, Is there any type of like earth equivalent or analog or something that we could see or is there too much going on in on earth? That's like too much happening geologically. There's
1: so much stuff going on and it's just just too much of a mess. (laughs) It is definitely Uh, sort of an issue. There's a lot going on on earth. Um, A lot of craters actually are covered up um, or have been sort of worn away due to erosion. So there's only a handful of craters that actually have um, real ejecta. So there are a number of craters that the the, sort of the the hole in the ground is there, but there isn't a lot of the material that came out of the crater. But there are a couple. And interestingly, um, we actually think, especially following my research, that the craters on Earth have a lot more in common with the craters on Mars in some capacities than the moon craters do with either of the other two. So Mars has a lot of um, volatiles and other uh, important components to its crust that um, the moon doesn't really have in the same way, and Earth does. So Earth and Mars are similar um, both in their makeup, and they have both have erosion. So there are active processes on both. So in some ways, comparing Martian craters to Earth craters actually makes a lot of sense. Um, Even though we do still learn a lot from studying lunar craters as well.
0: And I guess when it comes to comparing the Mars craters to Earth craters, do you still find the disadvantage of since the erosion on Earth is such more um, aggressive and dynamic that it's hard to find a perfect analog to um, Martian craters since everything's either completely covered in vegetation, uh, destroyed by plate tectonics or covered by sediments, that it's tricky to maybe find that perfect um, site on earth to compare to the Hargraves Crater.
1: Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Um, Part of my research actually did take a look at the Rees Crater uh, in Germany. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That crater as an analog, um, partially to help us understand what we were seeing on the surface of Mars, and really trying to connect the the orbital observations that I can make because mine are all done from satellite images um, to the in situ field work that you can do on Earth to actually look at the the layering in an ejecta blanket um, and the the internal structure. So it is there are very few options for analogs on Earth, but we do see them and and my research actually did work to sort of connect the Reese crater to Hargrave's crater um, and, and note some of the similarities that we see between the two of them. They both have um, this layered structure where you can see multiple, like at least two periods of um, emplacement uh, where the layers of the ejecta were put into place. <laughs> um, so it's difficult, but still important to connect them. But in, in that way, now we can use the information that we can learn from craters, um, hargraves type craters in particular uh, on Mars to help us understand some of what may have been in the past around certain craters on earth. Um, so it sort of goes a little bit both ways um, when we can connect the analog on earth to the crater that we see on Mars.
0: And for grave, you grave, you said you used spacecraft data to look at the ejector for that crater. And for, for the Reese crater, did you get a chance to go in the field and get to see what this ejector looks like? Or did you have to look at samples that were maybe brought back from past uh, field deployments?
1: Yeah, no, I didn't get to go in the field, unfortunately. I wish. But um, other members of uh, our research group have um, gone to the Reese and have written up. Um, some information about their observations there. um, And there are some hand samples as well. So I did a lot of um, sort of going over what they had found and then trying to use that as an example of this sort of layering on earth. So it was a lot more about just connecting what we already know about on earth to the new data that I was adding from Mars.
2: I feel as if I should switch my thesis and go and study the crater. (laughs) Fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like for you, Reese, it'd be like the perfect match.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Um, so you mentioned the rover that was going to be landing, or like in the very, very beginning. So are you excited? Are you going to be getting data for your thesis from that rover, or is that going to be included? Or
1: so um, I've actually so I finished that degree technically, so I'm not actively working on that. Um, that project anymore. Um, well, not really actively working on that project anymore. Um, so I won't be getting any new data that would be part of my part of my thesis, or anything. I have submitted that thesis, but I um, and completed it. I defended it. It's done. But Yay. a lot of the information that I learned doing my thesis is applicable to this some of the study site um, that they'll be looking at. So I'll, Data coming from the rover will be familiar and perhaps applicable to sort of underst- a further understanding of um, of both what I already learned and you know perhaps my research will influence some of what they learn at at Jezero. Although it'll be a while because they're sort of in a different area at the beginning. It's, it would be once they get out of the crater that it would be more relevant, um, but. Yeah, we'll see, it should be pretty exciting. I'm looking forward to the landing so we can see, see that area of Mars. It's exciting that that area that I'm so familiar with will be part of um, upcoming data coming from Mars.
0: Do you wanna quickly um, describe um, to the audience, what is it about this area on Mars that's made it so appealing for NASA to send a new rover? Because we already have, we've had spirit, we've had opportunity and curiosity is still Roving around, but what is it about Jezero Crater that made them want to send a new rover?
1: Yeah, for sure. So there's a couple things. First, the um, the part that's most relevant to what I've been doing is that the the bedrock area around the crater is some of the oldest crust on the surface of Mars, to our knowledge. So it's Noachian bedrock. Noachian is the time period on Mars. Um, so it's it's particularly old, um, which really would help with our understanding of how Mars has changed and sort of how its initial crust formed, a lot of other sort of evolutionary things regarding Mars. Um, but the the more immediate parts of what they're looking at at Jezero is that it's the site of a delta, a river delta. So there's a, a river that empties, uh, empties out into the inside of the crater. Um, so there should be uh, river sediments. Uh, they think that there was once uh, some evidence of a lake in Jezero Crater from that river. Um, so we're gonna see a, probably a lot of interesting sediment that will give us clues about how much water was once on the surface of Mars, um, how long that period existed, Were there multiple periods where there was water on the surface of Mars. So the, the water aspect and the possibility that there may have been life or um, components of life in that area is partially why it's so, so interesting. We've done a lot of looking for water on Mars in the past and part of Mars 2020 uh, Perseverance, the goal is to actually look for for signs of life and the materials that we need to make up life. So could there have been life in the past? Uh, Could there be life in the future? That sort of thing. Um, They're going to be doing some sampling. Uh, It's part of the point of the Mars 2020 Rover is to take samples and collect them and then a later mission will come back and pick up those samples and return them to Earth. So sample return uh, from Mars is a big, big goal of these upcoming missions. Um, and then the final component: there's a part of the interior of the crater um, has a chemical signature that some attribute to a, a volcanic origin or a some some igneous uh, igneous rock origin. Um, so those uh, very, uh, they're MAFIC signatures, I suppose. Those signatures are also attractive. They want to get evidence or collect samples and see evidence of um, deposits on the surface of Mars. So uh, that, those, that, the question of whether or not they're volcanic will be uh, presumably answered by the landing in Jezero Crater.
0: And you said that um, material that's close, that's probably more associated with the crater you were st- studying is going to be closer to near the end of the rover's um, journey when they get outside of Jezero crater. Yes. Because Because you mapped some of this material out, and then, so you saw some of the material was quite close to the edge of Jezero.
1: Yeah, so I did look, um, I did map out where the, the edge of the ejection from Hargraves crater is, and it doesn't quite um, reach over to Jezero. But uh, the I, I looked at the, you know, I had to look at the surrounding material as well as the ejecta coming from um, Hargraves, and we actually think that the Hargraves ejecta may have pulled from that Nowakian bedrock um, to then sort of throw it out onto the surface. Um, so once the rover Uh, has sort of done its initial part of the mission inside the crater. It's going, the plan right now is to go up the channel, the river channel, and out of the crater into um, the Sirdis lava areas. Um, But that that area uh, also is the Snowakian bedrock sort of underneath the lavas. But so depending on what you're looking at, you'd be seeing lavas or bedrock or some of the other components in between those two stages. But um, a lot of what I'll ha- I've been looking at, the Noachian bedrock, and um, then also the uh, ejecta from Jezero crater itself would probably be um, interesting for me to look at, similar rock layers that we'd be looking at. Um, and all of that will be available outside the crater. So once the rover has been able to make its way all the way out there.
2: I can't wrap my head around it. That's, it's completely crazy. (laughs) 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 To listen to you talk about this Martian body that's God knows how many kilometers away from earth. And you could just think of all the geologic possibilities that are out there. And I'm trying to, I'm thinking from a sedimentological perspective and the rivers, the rivers piqued my interest. Um, It would be so interesting to bring a core back or even just like a foot or two just
1: to see what it would yes. be like, but that's definitely in the distant distant future, yeah. not until we can go and return. One of my um, most interesting memories when I first got into planetary science was actually the first time that I was able to see um, cross bedding on Mars. So they have oh. images from they have images from the, uh, the Curiosity rover where you can really see good cross bedding in sandstone and I was like wow that's just that's geology on the surface of Mars just true sedimentology that we're doing here
2: for the for the listeners out there this is one of the most basic things that every single geologist learns regardless if you're in a hard rock or a soft rock geology program if you're obviously if you're learning in space or if you're learning on earth it's all the same (laughs) so that's that's fun that's interesting
0: yeah, I remember from my undergrad, they said, like, look out for cross bedding, and then you'll know there was flowing water.
1: There's actually a joke in the Martian community, although I wouldn't consider myself fully in, in part of that necessarily, but about how uh, the geologists and planetary scientists keep rediscovering water on Mars. Like, there's more and more evidence that there once was water on Mars, and so everything that they they do further proves that um, in some capacity there once was water on Mars.
0: Yeah, I want, it must come up a lot that where people constantly ask if there's actually still liquid water on Mars, because we still have no idea if there is. But the, the big consensus is that on the surface there definitely isn't any liquid water. But we do, like the River Delta and Jezero Crater is a good example showing that there once was flowing water on Mars. It was just millions if not billions of years ago, when when it was some um, able to be stable on the surface, at least.
1: There's some debate a little bit about some of those channels and whether or not they may have been glacial uh, or glacially related rather than um, sort of fluvial or, or rivers, the way that we conceptually think about them, um, which is an interesting just sort of side note to think about is that not all of them, but some of them may have been influenced by water from glaciers as opposed to, or and under glaciers as opposed to just rivers, which is interesting.
0: I guess it opens the door to more analog um, work you could do on earth because we, since we have so many glaciers, we can be able to find almost as many analogous or similar geological features to compare to Martian ones.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, I imagine people who study Glaciers, a lot probably took some interest in that paper and are interested to see whether or not they can do some sort of study on Earth that might give a better understanding of the the feasibility of that as a mechanism for creating those channels that we see.
2: Glacial geologists and their ice cores and all of that fun stuff. Is there <laughs> any like again from from a sediment perspective? Like you're talking about um, cross spreading cross Cross bedding and various other structures that I won't go into because I'll just continue on forever and ever. Um, but I guess one of the features is is that when there's no water, there's something called desiccation cracks, where you kind of have these like polygon shapes that get filled with sediment, and they're very distinctive. You can tell that there's definitely been like a dry spell. Um, is there anything that would, I guess, like be indicative of ice? Or water that's not like that's not bedding or anything. Like, does ice crack the sediment? Like, what does
1: what does it do? Yeah, um, I imagine as you know, spe- someone who's a glaciologist or a permafrost um, specialist would definitely have a, a real answer for you. But I do know um, there's a lot of uh, there are many polygonal features on the surface of Mars. There's a lot of evidence of um, various processes forming polygonal shapes. Um, so uh, there's another grad student within the department who's working specifically on uh, permafrost features in mid-latitudes mid, mid latitudes, um, on Mars. So there's, there's definitely evidence of uh, paraglacial in the sense of, of permafrost and similar um, features, as well as um, glacial, some evidence of glacial processes on mars as well so those pro those there's a lot of evidence um, of certain things and we have seen actual ice i think it's the phoenix lander dug a hole with its foot in the snow and there was ice that was revealed um, but we see ice actually with some craters some craters impact and they reveal ice um, in latitudes that are not just the poles so we there's there's ice at the poles of mars but we do see it Um, under the surface where we know that it's not exposed, but there's ice underneath. So people are working to connect um, surface morphology with um, evidence of ice so that we can get a better idea of how much ice is actually near surface on Mars, not just at the poles
0: yeah I, and for everyone in the audience listening if you are interested to learn as leah said more about um ice and the surface features that could be associated with ice you should check out uh, episode 269 with a phd candidate shannon hibbert where that is her that's the person leo was referencing so i definitely go check out her episode to get a much uh, a more a bigger perspective of what ice on mars and the processes associated with it are actually like and what's being studied but speaking of ice you're yeah, because your master's work, you worked on Hargrave and the ejector material, but in your Ph.D. I know you're still, you only just started, so you're probably yes. still trying to figure everything out, but you're now cha- transitioning from Mars to icy moons. Do yes. you want to tell us a little bit about, um, the, what brought you to icy moons?
1: Yes, or I would love to. Um, I, you know, I don't actually, I'm not sure that I have a really good reason, um, that i that i like the icy moons but i actually before i did my masters i even then i had interest in working on on icy moons i think part of it is that i'm very fascinated by um, europa and enceladus and the the possibilities of sort of an ocean that is covered over with a crust of ice and that existing out in the outer solar system i think is, is fascinating to me um and that you know there are uh there are cracks in the surface of Enceladus that have jets um, with molecules in those jets that you know eventually we may determine that there might be life down under the surface of one of those planets and that's that's incredible and the possibility of that is is like amazing to think about. Um, So my work my upcoming work that I haven't started yet. Um, well, I've started, but not not research research. Um, but we'll be looking at uh, fractures on a couple of other icy moons. Um, so I'll be looking at, uh, well, some slightly undecided, but I'll be looking at a couple of smaller moons to look at fractures um, and try to understand a little bit more about how those fractures form Uh, what what sorts of things play into the formation of those kinds of of fractures. And hopefully the idea would be that studying fractures on these smaller bodies and on other places would help us better understand um, those icy moons and and planets that we see that have very large fractures and, and access to water beneath them. So understanding those fractures is important for us to continue learning about um, and and understanding the the water and the possibility of life that we see on some of these moons in the full outer solar system. All right, wow, that's I still can't
2: wrap my head around it. I'm still I'm still processing the fact that all the sediment and all that fun stuff. Like obviously we're <laughs> aware of it, but like I'm I'm out I'm literally out in space. <laughs> I'm literally out in space trying to to understand it. Um, so. Real quick, you mentioned two celestial bodies.
1: Where are those celestial bodies in the solar system? So Europa and Enceladus are both moons of Jupiter.
0: No, I I think Europa is, but I
1: Enceladus is a moon of Saturn, maybe. (laughs)
0: Enceladus is yeah, Enceladus is Saturn. (laughs) I think
1: that that's true. I as soon as I said that, I was like, no, one of (laughs) them.
0: It's okay, um, <laughs> I made a similar mistake earlier and I thought, oh, dear.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, Europa, I know Europa is the moon of Jupiter and yes, Enceladus, I believe, is Saturn. Um, so yes, they're both very large moons, um, distinguishable in the night sky, well, with certain telescopes, um, but of the, the large gas, gas giants. All right, okay. Now I've got a geographical... Perspective.
2: <laughs> is,
0: that, <laughs> is, that even, is that even right? Uh, yes. You you could no, say cosmo- cosmological perspective. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if that's the right term either. Oh, <laughs> uh, but no, I think with any Europa, like in terms of planetary science missions, we have the Europa Clipper uh, mission that's going to be. Uh, it's going to be a while before it's even launched, but it was announced that it will be happening, which is very exciting because it will be the one of two. Um, icy moon missions that will be happening in the next um, definitely one well, couple decades or so.
1: Yes, um, Europa Clipper should be pretty, pretty great. Um, I believe I don't actually um, I'm not as in the know about what Europa Clipper entails, <laughs> but the from what I know, it's going to be um, an orbiter. So it will say around, well, it'll by orbiter, I mean it will be. Um, it will not land on the surface in this sense. Um, so it will be doing atmosphere analyses and imaging the surface, doing a lot of spectral work. So trying to understand the compositions of what they're seeing, and I think doing some like altimetry, trying to get some to- idea of topography and elevation. I'm trying to think about what else. There's a lot to learn about Europa. Um, a lot of things that we don't understand about Europa. Europa seems to have a lot of surfacing processes, so it doesn't have um, very much in the way of crater uh, crater evidence on it. And craters are one of the ways that we uh, both age date uh, planetary surfaces, but also get an idea of how active their surfaces are. And because Europa has very few craters on it, we get the impression that there's something that is actively recovering the surface of Europa. So understanding those mechanisms, there's a lot of theories about what's going on. I have not looked into them specifically, so I can't really give you a full overview, (laughs) but um, understanding that and trying to understand how much access we have, just being on the surface of Europa to the lower layers of Europa, how much of the um, sort of lower subsurface material is making its way to the surface as part of that resurfacing process. Um, so understanding that is one of the big um, questions going to Europa. Again, sort of leading toward this possibility of, are the components for life available below the surface of Europa, on the surface of Europa? Is there life in the solar system beyond us? Is really, that's the, you know, the age old question of planetary science, really.
0: Well, that, that's going to be a, a lot to take in for everyone who's just being delved into the world of icy moons and I think we're definitely going to, when this episode comes out, show you guys images of Europa and Enceladus so you can get an idea of what Leo's um, talking about here because they're very cool icy moons to, to look at. And Unfortunately, we are just about to get to the end of our show, but Leo, is there any way people can contact you to learn more about your work and learn more about icy moon research?
1: Of course. So you can follow me on Twitter at, um, well, my Twitter handle is at LithicLea. And then my website, which has a blog, which I occasionally will post research updates on, is leahinspace.com. You're welcome to find me on either of those or on LinkedIn if you want.
0: Sounds good. We'll leave links in the show notes for everyone. Thank you again for coming on, Leah.
1: of course. Thanks for having me.
0: So this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host, Gavin Telemedi, with co-host Reese Patterson. We have been speaking with Leah Sachs, who's studying planetary science in the Department of Earth Sciences. If you'd like to learn more about the show or come on as a guest or maybe join the committee, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. We are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Gradcast Radio or you can listen, download our episodes on podcast apps such as Podbean, iTunes and Spotify. And alternatively, you can find our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on our YouTube channel at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.